Hey, everyone, I want to invite you to a writing event that is coming up, a somewhat unknown writing event. Um, you know, at NaNoWriMo, we're so well known for National Novel Writing Month that happens every uh, November that sometimes people don't know that we do writing events throughout the year. And one special event is Camp NaNoWriMo. We have sessions of it in April and July. And it's, it's just like NaNoWriMo, except it's a more casual version of NaNoWriMo. We believe that a, that a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife, and a goal and a deadline is at the heart of Camp NaNoWriMo, except you don't have to write 50,000 words of a novel. You can come on our site, and if you want to write 10,000 words in the month of April, uh, you can set a goal of 10,000 words. If you want to write a poem a day or a piece of flash fiction a day, you can do that for Camp NaNoWriMo. There's just many different ways you can participate, but the core of NaNoWriMo is there. You know, we provide inspiration and motivation and resources and most importantly, a community of writers to help galvanize you. So our next session of Camp NaNoWriMo is happening in April. So please sign up for it and enjoy writing whatever you want to write. Welcome self-improvement junkies, information gatherers, and seekers of practical knowledge. I'm Brooke Warner. I'm here with Grant Faulkner. And Grant, I think I can speak for both of us when I say we're always up for a good challenge. And challenge is at the heart of today's episode because we're talking to Peggy Orenstein, someone whose work I've admired for a really long time. And I also think it's a safe bet to say that Peggy is up for a good challenge, which she confirms in today's interview. Uh, and it's also exemplified in her new book, which is called Unraveling, What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. So Grant, this book got me thinking about how many books are out there that combine elements of self-help with memoir or self-improvement with memoir. Uh, and in this case, even more than that, because Peggy is also a journalist. And so there's also like a lot of information in this book about the history of fabric art and specifically knitting. It's super interesting. And so I'm excited that we get to unpack it. And Grant, I'm curious your thoughts on knitting. Would you pick up a book on this topic? Yeah, I, I actually don't think I would pick up a book that's specifically about knitting as a non-knitter, as much as I admire knitting, but I would pick up one that combines a reflection on knitting with a memoir and those other topics or challenges that Peggy uh, wrangles with. And I, I want to note that I often refer to knitting in my talks, actually, about writing, so I'm not an anti-knitter or anything. <laughs> and the reason I refer to it is because I always think of knitting as an art that many people enjoy just for the sake of knitting. You know, They just want to knit beautiful things or useful things, and they're not trying to professionalize it by becoming a knitting influencer on social media or selling their sweaters in department stores. So I'm a big fan of knitting for knitting's sake and writing for writing's sake. But I think what would sway me to buy this is that it is uh, a self-improvement memoir. So I delved into this one a bit and saw that it's about so many things, about history and politics and the climate crisis and how we've lost touch with the value of our clothing as a result of fast fashion and throwaway culture. So in fact, the book is, is right up my alley and I learned a lot by reading it. Yeah, I love that. And and actually, Peggy delves into how much knitting and other things like textiles and stitching and all kinds of things are metaphors in our everyday language. I think it's just because this stuff has been around for so long. You know, we spin a yarn and uh, there's just all kinds of ways that we think about that kind of thing in our everyday speech. Uh, and I am calling this a self-improvement memoir, uh, and, and in part because it is a self-improvement like experience, I guess, on Peggy's part, she sets out to tackle this experience, or you could call it an experiment, which is to shear a sheep and then make her own yarn from the wool and then to knit 
the sweater from said yarn, uh, but it's also one part self-improvement for the reader because the reader gets to experience it alongside her. And I just wanted to discuss this type of memoir, what we might call in the industry a hybrid memoir, uh, although sometimes that books end up being a little bit more self-help in nature. And books like these that everybody knows are ones like Gretchen Rubin's The Happiness Project or Julie Powell's Julie and Julia, where she set out to cook all 525 recipes in Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking in a Single Year. And so these books are often set up to be challenges that the writer then sets out to complete or to figure out. And I think oftentimes these books are sold on proposal, which I know to be the case with Peggy. Uh, and then I also think that ever since blogging emerged on the scene, that these are also books that sometimes start out as blogs, and then they're really popular, and then they turn into book deals. So that's a piece of it as well. But I've always been super fascinated with these kinds of books. And I think it's because when I was at Seal Press, these were the kinds of books that I was always looking to acquire. You know, a woman takes on a project or a challenge, and then she writes about it. And she tells you what she learns in the process, and then you gain something. And I just wanted to share one of the ones I wish I'd acquired. And it's always stood out at me as like the, the book that I missed and um, has you know, this many years later stayed with me. Uh, it was a 2006 book called Self-Made Man, One Woman's Year Disguised as a Man. And the author, Nora Vincent, did this experiment for 18 months where she went out as a man, you know, like dressed basically in drag to pass as a man, integrating into male spaces and then writing about what that experience was like. Totally amazing book. And so it's just to say great books come out of these kinds of experiences and the dedication that it takes to commit yourself to these kinds of projects is also very impressive. Uh, and and then, you know, there's the readership for these kinds of books once they're out. And so it's really a thing unto itself. Yeah, definitely. And I, I can see that. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, actually, to know what you think makes books like this work, you know, like, I see the appeal. Yet, I also feel the formula of books like this as a reader. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes distrust books that follow a predetermined formula or goal, because it can seem like a gimmick or a stunt, you know, I can, I can feel the wheels of that book proposal contriving life in other words so <laughs> so, I, so i think you really have to have a smart idea that you can tie to a broader social more um and then there's more to that too i mean i mean in this case i think what makes peggy's memoir work is that it is a personal story and it is about personal perseverance and in her case she tackles this really ambitious project that doesn't sound like it's all that much at the outset but but then when you get into the book you soon discover that shearing a sheep turns out to be a major undertaking <laughs> it's not easy right as is uh, every single other part of the process of making a sweater from start to finish by hand and and that's kind of the point to help uh, readers not take for granted what they wear. So her book uh, and many books like this, they have these larger points and more ambitious goals beyond just the fact of the experiment itself. And it was enlightening to me as a result. So I want to hear your take, Brooke. What about these books appeal to publishers? Well, the industry, I do think, loves these kinds of books because of all the things you just said, right? They make broader points about our society, about politics, all the things. Uh, and uh, But there's also this thing about memoir, right? Like memoir can be this very me, me, me kind of reading experience. Obviously, the best ones are not. But I think part of the industry's ambivalence about memoirs have to do with the fact that they're self-focused in a sense. And so it's why I'm always teaching my memoir students, like how do you broaden outward? How do you make the reading experience about more than just you, or at least resonant. And so there is this love-hate 
relationship going on in the industry with memoir in general. But I also think that stems from our own culture's love-hate relationship to (laughs) self-exposure. Like on the one hand, we totally admire people who do it. And on the other, we are kind of a culture that's deeply entrenched in these Puritan roots. And it's only been the past two generations that there's been such a push to outwardly orient ourselves or to share in the way that we do, like because of social media and reality TV and all these things that have totally changed our culture. And I think it's only been since the 1980s that there's this particular reverence to the self-referential, self-examining behavior that we now see as admirable. And so now it's the norm, but publishing still has mixed feelings about it. And so I don't know if it's something that we're going to get past, you know, the farther into this new world order that we get, uh, you know, if we'll always just have these vestiges of disdain for what we've morphed into. But it's to me, that's what's really interesting to look at. And I think that's why these kinds of memoirs not just get a pass, but really are actively sought out in a different way than other kinds of memoirs, because Unraveling is a memoir, but it's much more than a memoir. And because it's full of research and cultural observations and all of this other stuff. Peggy's on a fact-finding mission. Uh, it, it really does veer almost into like social commentary, right? So I think that's something to keep in mind for those listeners out there who are thinking about how to make your memoir maybe more than just a memoir about you and your experience, right? Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I actually hadn't given too much thought to that fraught relationship, uh, you know, that publishing has with memoir, but of course you have, and I can, I can see how hybrid memoirs would kind of sidestep some of those biases because they automatically prove themselves, you know, to a broad readership. And I was reading before we came on uh, one New York times piece on self-help memoirs noted that these kind of books offer semi-literary pleasure with practical usefulness. And, And that actually hit the mark perfectly for me because there are memoir that guarantees learning something, which is nice, or there are self-help book that's more fun to read because it's personal. And I actually try to achieve that balance when I write about writing because I like to know about a writer's life when I read their craft tips. So before we bring Peggy on, Brooke, uh, what was the most satisfying part for you of Peggy's book? Uh, Since you're someone who really loves memoir and also there's this practical usefulness element to this one. And I don't think you've ever shared cheap. (laughs) I definitely have not. And after reading the book, I'm not going to. My gosh, it is like an insane thing to do and very dangerous, actually. Uh, But I liked the more memoir-esque parts, definitely. I loved the writing about sharing, even though I came away from it deciding I'm not going to do it. It's also incredibly impressive that she did it. Uh, It's actually considered a sport sharing. And you burn an insane amount of calories doing it way more than running. So that's kind of cool. Peggy is a really likable narrator. So I enjoyed hanging out with her. She writes a lot about her dad, who she spends time with during COVID via Zoom, while she's making her fleece into yarn. Uh, And he is a really sweet character. There's a tenderness there. And she's going to talk a little bit about that in the interview. Uh, And then there are all these fascinating things in the book about how far we as a people have come from having any awareness about our clothing. I really didn't know the extent to which the fashion industry is contributing to climate change. I mean, I should have known that, but I just hadn't sunk into it. Uh, and and that's just, you know, we have more awareness about food than we do about clothing. Another point that Peggy makes in the book, like I knew microfibers were 
a thing and that they were problematic, but I didn't totally understand the degree to which clothing is responsible for that. So I did learn a lot about fast fashion, uh, you know, about how our discarded clothes just go to developing countries to die, basically what a burden it is. And there's just so much waste. And so Peggy's writing about this process to make a single sweater and how that put her in touch with the actual physical labor and the handiwork that goes into clothing and what's happening to us as a result of losing touch of this tactileness, you know, that was really, really important. And it's, uh, it was sort of consciousness raising to me in a way. And and in that way, it has like truly amazing consequences for our thinking. And I think that can change behaviors. Yeah, I'm now ready to shear a sheep and, and maybe knit. So uh, let's find out more from Peggy after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Peggy Orenstein, and she's a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, and internationally recognized speaker on gender issues, especially those related to teens, sex, and relationships. She's the author of eight books, including her latest, Unraveling, What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. Peggy is joining us from Berkeley, and Grant and I are in Berkeley. So welcome, Peggy. We're so thrilled to have you. Great to have you. I wave at you from across town. Yes, I know. We're all in our different Berkeley spots here. And Unraveling, as I said, is your eighth book. So congratulations. It is. It's wonderful. (laughs) And I'm especially curious to know how much this book is or isn't a departure from your previous books, because in a way, it's really a challenge memoir in that you set out to do this thing, which you can tell us a little bit about and then write about it. And I'm curious, have there been elements of that in previous work or how is this different than what you might have tackled in the past? Wait, is that a thing? Is that like a publishing thing? A challenge memoir. I'm going to call it a thing. The self-improvement memoir is a thing though. Well, yeah, no, I didn't think of it that way. I, I mean, I think everything I do is a challenge because I'm, <laughs> I'm always, you know, going into something often completely ignorant. Um, even when I did girls and sex, uh, I remember going out with a girlfriend who was a teach a high school teacher when, and I already had gotten the contract to do the book. And she said, um, do you know what a hookup is? And I just looked at her blankly. So I was starting at a pretty low level of understanding of the current culture, but, but I don't see this as a departure for a different reason. I mean, I see it. I, since writing it, I thought about a lot more, um, how it speaks to some of my earlier work. I think it's a real bookend to Waiting for Daisy, my memoir that I wrote that came out in blah, 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 I want to say 2008, um, about um, infertility and our quest to have our daughter. That was a challenge. Um, and having breast cancer. And that book ends with Daisy's birth. And this book ends with her going off to college. So that was sort of a um, nice bookend. Um, but also a friend of mine recently pointed out that my first book, School Girls, ends with the line, that's how you teach about gender one stitch at a time. 
because I'm watching this middle school teacher in San Francisco doing this quilt project with, with her kids, with her students. And I had, as you said, eight books. I had completely and utterly, I had no idea what he was talking about when he said that. So I had to go re- reread my own book. And I was shocked that it had that metaphor in it. Um, but of course, textiles are metaphors. You know, they, they just are in everywhere. And even when we, you know, when we send these little messages to one another on these devices, we call them texts, which is the same word as textile. Um, and we make threads out of them. It's so ubiquitous. So there's that. And then the other pieces is that I've always felt that my real beat as a writer and my concern and my interest has been um, in examining the unexamined aspects of ordinary life and particularly ordinary women's lives. And unraveling is so much, you know, first of all, the story of women and women's work and what we don't know about women's work and how radical women's work is. But also I was so shocked as I went through it, that I never, through this process, really revealed to me um, that we never think about our clothing the way we think about our food. And, and, and why is that in terms of sustainability and ethics? And we sort of joked before we came on air that um, Grant and I probably have met at a farmer's market, but, you know, <laughs> how natural is, you know, what, what about your clothing, Grant? What are you wearing? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, all, all 100% hemp fabrics purchased at a Berkeley <laughs> farmer's market um, exactly. from, a, from a man on the corner. No. Right, right. <laughs> uh, well, Peggy, you're, you're known for your work writing about gender and your previous books are literally classics, you know, books like what you mentioned, School Girls, Flocks and Girls and Sex. And, and this book at its heart is really about women because you're writing about how women have more for millennia been the ones doing the handiwork necessary to make what we wear. And I'm just curious if you could go a little bit deeper into where the inspiration for this book came from, especially since maybe it came from COVID or did it start earlier than that? Well, I mean, it did start earlier. I did an event in Santa Rosa recently um, for the book release. And there was a woman there who um, is sort of the hero of girls and sex, Karis Dennison. And she said, raised her hand and said, you know, when you were following me around in 2012 for Girls and Sex, you were talking about wanting to share sheep. And I thought, I was? Huh. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's been kind of a, a long held, I mean, I'm just a curious person and I like to know how things work um, and, and that, you know, and, and I'm a knitter. And so I would look at my yarn and just think, gosh, I wonder who thought of this yarn thing and, and, and who in the world thought of knitting? And we still do it the same way, you know, like that we did it a million years ago. It hasn't changed. So these things sort of amaze me. So I'd, I'd had this curiosity and and actually tried to get into sheep shearing school before. I thought maybe I'd write an article about it, but I could never, for various reasons, it never worked out. And then um, during, you know, when, when lockdown hit, I had just had boys and sex out. Uh, I'd been touring the country. I was actually on my way to an airport um, on March 11th, and I just couldn't do it. I turned around uh, and, and canceled three gigs. And th- two days later was when everything, you know, just fell. And um, so I was just sitting there and I, 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 I didn't know what to do. And I was knitting a lot and uh, it seemed a good time to try this. And, and I really, honestly, I thought my, my agent and editor who live in New York city would just laugh at me. You know, what, what kind of thing is that to do? Especially that there, I have no track record doing something like that, but it was at the moment that everybody was baking sourdough and putting it up on Instagram. And so it seemed very much, I guess, um, trendy when, when I pitched it. And, you know, who knew we were still going to be sitting there a year later? 
Yeah, no kidding. You hit a zeitgeist moment. And I was wondering, well, so I first want to say I saw you in person recently. And so I got to see this ugly sweater, which is beautiful in its ugliness. Yes. It, it is. And and I wanted to ask you, how long did the process take from start to finish to shear the sheep, dye the wool and make the sweater? And I asked that specifically because I want to know what insight you had, you know, going into this whole process initially, like, what did you think? <laughs> what did it turn out to be? Oh, God. I had no idea. Um, and I, you know, that actually suddenly triggered something from also from Waiting for Daisy, which is I talk about Wabi Sabi because I'm in Japan during that memoir for part of it and talking about the, you know, what, what makes something beautiful is its imperfection. And I think that's kind of true of the ultimate sweater. It's kind of beautiful because it's ugly. But I, I just, I really didn't know. Um, I, I didn't think about how long the process would take so much as how long a book takes. And I thought that the book would be a, you know, I pitched it as a quickie. I, I said, I'll be done with it, you know, easily within a year, maybe six months. Um, we can get it right out. And it, it took a lot longer than that in part because, I mean, there was the process and different things took different amounts of time, but there was also just like, you know, I just got so interested in the research on all of this stuff, but, you know, so shearing sheep, I did in a day, I just, you know, learned how to do that. And it was very, 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 very hard. The timing does not, the time that it took does not reflect the difficulty of the job. But there were other things like, oh gosh, carding, um, which is how you get after you've washed the fleece and dried it and you have to comb it with these two things. You might've done this like on a field trip as a kid to a farm or something. You 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 card these you take these toothbrushes that look like dog hair brushes and kind of go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with a little piece of fluff until it gets really poofy. And then you roll it in a, into like a cigar shaped puff and you put it aside for spinning. It would take me about 10 minutes to do that. And um, I read that it took 579 of those to make a sweater. So that part took, you know, forever, like forever. <laughs> <laughs> So it depended. And and I was learning things. So learning to die, you know, I mean, I could have done it in a day, I suppose, but I wanted to, you know, learn a little bit about it and how it worked and different aspects of it. So it took months. Peggy, that's interesting because I think the that is part of the self-help or self-improvement memoir is just that learning someone else's process, especially for something as foreign as shearing a sheep. And before you came on, Brick and I were talking about the industry's love-hate relationship with memoirs and how these kind of hybrid memoirs, or, or as Brooke said earlier, self-improvement or challenge memoirs, they're often better received because of their very nature, because they're tackling broader topics and there's a baked-in practicality for the reader uh, where you're learning something in addition to reading about your experience. Or for me, it would be like reading about something that I kind of want to learn but don't want to truly do. Hmm. And in your book about your daughter, which you mentioned, Waiting for Daisy, was a more straightforward memoir. So I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts on books like this one, uh, the one you've written, and how you think about it in terms of genre. <laughs> Grant, I'd like to say I think in terms of genre, but I don't. I think in terms of what I want to write, um, and then I try to get to convince somebody that it's a good idea. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've had memoirs like I had. A, I, I have long wanted to write something, a memoir that was also about, which is not unrelated to this, but is about my family history in North Dakota, um, Jews on the Prairie. Uh, or Dakota Jews, as I've wanted to call it. Um, but uh, that, you know, I, I would always say, well, I've got this Dakota Jews idea and I've got girls and sex. Uh, I'm not really sure. What do you think? And they would go, <laughs> um, 
Yeah. <laughs> Let me think, think about, about that, that for not a second. Um, so that one has never been written. Uh, that's really interesting. I don't know. Um, you know, I really have always aspired to doing, I guess, what you're calling a challenge memoir. I think of them as kind of George Plimpton-y kind of things a little bit, like mm. going off to do something that you would, I, I have a streak in me as a person that I like to do periodically um, kind of outside of the box things. So for instance, next month I'm going off to trek a hundred miles through Slovenia or I, I went dog sledding for a week in the Arctic circle. These are things I do for, you know, for, for, and then write about them. Um, so I, I, I get a, you know, I get kind of a wild hair about things. Um, and, and I, and I love, I mean, if I could spend the rest of my career doing that sort of thing, doing like, Oh, I wonder if I can do this and and then try to write about it. I would, but I, but for me, I feel like, I guess I didn't think of it as grafting. I think, I think of it as braiding, you know, in sort of my own personal experience and my own responses I think that only gives it depth and allows the reader to relate. But I also think, you know, to a degree, I've always done it. You know, if you look at things like, um, even in Schoolgirls, my first book, I walk into it sometimes. You know, it's not completely omniscient. And and there's moments like, I remember one of the girls in the book had asked them to keep journals and she gave me a journal and she had taken a bunch of Tylenol PM one night in a kind of, you know, quasi attempted suicide. And then she wrote in the journal, um, you know, that nobody knows about this, but Peggy's going to read it. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know what? I can't. The girl is 13 years. You know, I can't just read that and write about it. And it was a kind of moment of truth for me as a young journalist, um, especially one who writes about teenagers. And so what I ended up doing was going to her and saying, I need to tell an adult in your life about this and you can choose who, but I need to talk to somebody that is actually, you know, in your life. And then I wasn't sure how to handle that in the book. Um, and what I ended up doing was writing the story I just told you that she had, you know, she handed me this, I had this moment of what do I do? I asked some social workers and psychologists, what do I do? And this is what I did. So even back then, I was kind of inserting myself into the narrative and acting as for the reader, I always think of myself as not an expert or a uh, or somebody who is, you know, going up to the mountain and bringing down this information to you, but as a fellow traveler, as somebody who's walking by my reader's side or sitting by them on the couch and and having a conversation and am as in it and finding out about whatever we're talking about along with them, not not telling them, you know, what it is as for somebody who is more educated or knows more or has no foibles. Well, and it's executed really well. I mean, like Grant said, I, I don't think I would do this shearing, dyeing, knitting project, but I feel like I got to experience it vicariously. So thank you for that. Uh, and, you know, you wrote this book during COVID. And as you said, people were doing all kinds of creative things. I mean, there was the baking craze and there was lots of handcrafts going on and the world was so slowed down. Um, and now, of course, it just feels like someone hit fast forward. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm curious, what wisdoms do you have to share with us about having had that opportunity to slow down and doing this project? I mean, we were all forced to slow down, but I guess I'm wondering what do you miss and not miss about what we all recently lived through? Um, well, I mean, for me, one of the great 
real gifts of it. I write a lot. Part of the personal memoir aspect of this was writing about my parents. And I knew I was going to write about my mom because she taught me to knit, and which is a theme in the book of what we learn from our mothers, what we don't learn from our mothers, what we wish we learned from our mothers, what we pass on to our daughters, what we wish we didn't pass on to our daughters, what we try not to pass on to our you know, all of that. <laughs> but I didn't realize how much I would write about my dad. And and my dad, during lockdown, he, he has since died, but during lockdown, he was 94. Um, he had dementia. He's hearing impaired. Um, he was in a facility in Minneapolis where nobody could go in and out or out. And even before that, it was so hard to communicate with him because of his dementia, because of his hearing impairment. And I would, you know, busy life, busy life. I think I'm going to call dad. You know, I I, I want to be a good daughter. I am a good daughter. I love my dad. Going to call him, going to call him. Got to call him every day. Oh, well, but now, you know, he's probably eating. Well, no, now he's probably sleeping. You know, now he didn't and it's too late because there's a way that you sort of, you don't want to, you know, and, and, and so you kind of trick yourself out of it. And especially when I was doing that, um, what I mentioned before, the work of carding, which was so tedious, what I would do is have his aide um, put him on my screen on FaceTime and I would just sit with him and I would card my fleece the way people used to, you know, thousands of years ago, which was very slow, no internet. They were were essentially on lockdown thousands of years ago because, you know, What else did they have to do? And and my dad um, would watch, uh, there were the Twins games, um, Minnesota Twins, they had like a fantasy season of reruns where they always won, which he thought was something he was doing with his walker, a, a trade secret, he said. He wouldn't tell me what it was, which is probably why they're losing now. He <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, and, and he would say, he thought I was there. He would say, can you pass, you know, Pat, can you grab me that glass of water? And I'd say like, dad, no, I can't reach it. Um, and... And we would, you know, we didn't talk a lot. So we would sing a lot because um, the part of the brain that stores song lyrics is not the same. I mean, eventually it will be, but it's slower to degrade cognitively and or devolve. And so he could still sing all the songs he knew as a young person. You are my sunshine and give my regards to Broadway. And so we would sing and I would card my fleece and he would watch his game. And it was slow and it just let me connect with him in a way that even when I visited him in Minneapolis, I didn't do because I would always be off seeing a friend or visiting my sister-in-law or my brother or whoever. And um, gosh, I'm I'm just, I, I can't even tell you how much I treasure that time now looking back at it. Well, Peggy, in conclusion, there's the question always that most authors are asked in moments like this is what you're working on next. And I'd like to, put a little twist on that because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by your Dakota Jews project. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and I'm fascinated on the level of, because I have a, a version of that myself and it's, it's, it's never the book chosen, but it's the book I most want to write and the one that would be most meaningful to me. Mm. And I want to read Dakota Jews, by by the way. So I'm just kind of curious about your idea, generating pitching process and actually what that looks between your agent and publisher, because it seems like at this point, Maybe you're in charge enough that you can call the shots on what you write next? Uh, not entirely. I mean, you know, I suppose it depends. It's part of it is a commerce thing, right? I mean, maybe they'd let me write that, but I'm not sure that I could make a living writing that. So um, that enters into it. And actually, um, I mean, if I may kind of diverge a little bit, that was a really important lesson in doing this book was around creativity and the meaning of creativity and being able to re-embrace amateurness and, and, and a beginner's mind um, and process over product 
while doing this was like the huge lesson for me. And I, and I think that when we do something like writing for a living, that sometimes that joy in creating can be degraded a little bit by the demands of the market. If you are truly making a living this way, which I am. Um, so yeah, the Dakota Jews book, I keep thinking when I'm free of those concerns someday, when I'm older, when I'm, you know, living on my social security or whatever, and don't, need to make an income. That's my book, except now everybody's died and I probably lost that book. But so this book, um, Unraveling, uh, was, the, I, I think the way that, that my publisher saw it as a departure was that it wasn't like this, you know, big capital B I G book that my last two books have been that girl or my, or girls and sex and boys and sex. And what they want and expect from me, um, is to be able to come up with another, capital B, capital I, capital G book. And that's really hard. And those do not just pop into my head. Those come out of, you know, my experience. Those come out of my interests. Those, it's it's not something that you can sort of do on demand. Um, but that's kind of the expectation of my publisher. So as I pitch books, uh, that's kind of what they look for. And I was really happy and, you know, delighted to be able to write something else um, and, and, and what was really wonderful for me in this was that was the way that it got me to, it, it allowed me to use a different aspect of my writers, not entirely. I think this is always in my books, but, but foreground humor, um, personal writing and voice in a way that I feel is, is more challenging when I'm writing those sort of bigger reported books. Well, thank you so much, Peggy. And I do want to say to all of our listeners out there, because the you hit all of those notes, you know, it's it's an unexpected book in a sense, because it's got this very fun, cute lamb or sheep <laughs> on the cover. And it's got this kind of wild subtitle, but it's quite serious. And I learned so much about the fashion industry and really thinking a lot more about my clothing. And I hope all of our listeners who haven't bought the book yet will rush out and get it and you do the audiobook yourself. I do. So that was fun as well. So thank you and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great fun. Thanks, Peggy. I'll maybe see you at the next Berkeley Farmers Market. Oh yeah. In the hemp section. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, Grant, part of how I rope people into coming into the show sometimes is that I go and intentionally try to see them in person and then convince them that they should join us for a conversation. And so I kind of did that with Peggy. I mean, I intentionally went to one of her events at a local Bay Area uh, sort of brunch thing. And so it was awesome because I got to talk to her uh, and we got to talking about writing while getting older. And so she inspired this week's trend by getting me thinking about this topic. Uh, and then The Guardian published an article called Things Are Definitely Opening Up, The Rise of Older Female Writers. And I thought, perfect. So let's talk about the rise of older female authors for this week's trend. 
Yeah, I'm in. And I, I want to hear more about the conversation you had with Peggy because I love, you know, behind the scenes conversation stuff in general, especially with revered authors. And I'm just curious also what you were talking about specifically about the rise of the older female authors. And I'm especially, uh, it's great to see that The Guardian had that article because I have a different perception, I guess. You know, I see so many younger female writers being featured. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. And, and you know, Peggy actually was saying that it's been harder for her to get the typical kind of attention that she's gotten in the past uh, for this book, Unraveling. And one of her theories is that for certain outlets, like let's say NPR, they don't really need to worry about courting the white 50 plus female listener. And so she was noting that she hadn't quite gotten the same level of publicity she's gotten for books in the past. But we talked about that in the interview a little bit. I mean, her previous books also had kind of a sexier edge. I mean, it's like if you're talking about girls and sex, literally you're talking about sex and sex sells. Uh, But, you know, actually when I saw the article about the rise of the female author, it did make me think that part of the complication about publicity is just the sheer number of female writers who are writing and publishing books. But the cool thing about that article is that lots of them are also having a ton of success. Mm, That's great. And uh, yeah, on that note of success, The Guardian specifically noted um, some of those breakout books that are driving this momentum. There's The Paper Palace by Miranda Cowley Heller, who's 61. And listeners, you should buy all these books to keep them going, of course. And then there's Debut Novel by Bonnie Garman. Lessons in Chemistry, a book that's all the rage right now, and the author is 66. Also, A Terrible Kindness by Joe Browning Rowe, who's in her late 50s, and The Whalebone Theater by Joanna Quinn, also 61. I want to note that's not really, really old in my book. But, um, it <laughs> the closer is in you some... get to it, though, it's like, wait, that young? <laughs> yeah, but it is older <laughs> in some people's books. So, yeah, these, these women are definitely giving hope to older authors who are wanting to enter into this space. Um, but I assume it also takes the publishing industry being more open to these voices, right, Brooke? And I'm curious about why that might be. Yeah, I mean, that's totally true. Historically, my experience of the publishing industry is that it is very ageist. And actually, that has not changed just because one article came out celebrating older women authors. Uh, You know, that said, the boomers have always been a demographic to push the boundaries. Uh, They're also a huge generation. They also refuse to take no for an answer. Uh, And they're aging well, right? So like these older women are doing really interesting things in later life. And so then you have the older Gen Xers following their lead. Uh, And so maybe this really is just a sea change in our culture that a lot of people are starting new ventures in their 50s and 60s. These are second or third careers and people have great stories to tell so i don't know if the publishing industry is finally waking up to the fact that it's about the story stupid (laughs) or you know if if this is just like a moment but i don't think so you know i I kind of am gonna go with the sea change yeah let's go with it it's about the story stupid i like that (laughs) as a as a mantra for the future um so kudos to the rising older women writers that's a great trend and I, i i hope our for our boundaries to keep being pushed because that is how we grow individually and as a culture and we try to do our part pushing boundaries each week on right minded so we appreciate your support please invite a friend to join you in listening invite your writing group invite your book group invite your knitting group and your sheep shearing group and we'll see you again next week 